Well, good afternoon. Welcome to the fifth of five weekend services here at New Spring. We're starting a brand new series called It's Apparent, which is kind of humorous when you think about it, because if you're a parent, there ain't nothing apparent, especially if you have more than one kid. You think you get it down with your first kid, and the next kid comes along, and somebody changes all the questions. But today, we're going we're gonna to start a brand new series about parenting, and for me, it's kind of a, it's kind of a bittersweet uh, series, because I love parenting, and I had three, we have three sons. Our oldest son is Jonathan, you know him, he's 30. We have a son, Jared, who's 28, and then our youngest son, Stephen, is is a senior at Andover. He's 18, he's about to graduate in a couple of weeks. Then he's going to Wichita State, and he's going to live on campus. So after having kids at home for over 30 years, we're we're seeing the time coming when we're not going to have a kid at home. And, And honestly, I got to tell you, I don't know that I'm looking forward to that because I've enjoyed my kids. And in fact, I've said from the very beginning, I was talking to Jonathan about this before the first service last night. I, I saw, when I was a young parent, I'd, I'd seen, you know, parents love their kids, really enjoy their kids when they were little and they got to be teenagers. You know, Mark Twain said, when a boy turns 13, put him in a box and cut a hole big enough for him to breathe. And then he said, when he turned 17, plug up the hole. And, and, and I'd, I'd sort of seen that with a lot of people, you know. They were close to their kids when they were little. They got to be teenagers. And then, then I'd seen, you know, fathers who really didn't have a lot of interest in their kids when they were little, but then they lived vicariously through their kids when they were sports playing ages. And I just decided I was going to enjoy my kids at all stages. And, and, and I've really done that. I enjoyed them when they were toddlers, and I, I enjoy watching Jonathan now, 30 when he's, you know, a, when he's a, someone who works with me and I watch him, you know, fulfill his destiny. So I, I really enjoy watching my kids, but at the same time, there's a little bit of bittersweet feeling because as I preach this series, I'm going to share with you a lot of things that I've learned from the Bible, a lot of things that I've learned in 30 years of being a parent, a lot of things that I've learned in counseling you know, thousands of people, I guess, or at least hundreds of people, if not thousands of people through the years. But I, I realize that, that my opportunity to make the biggest impact is probably coming close to an end. And, and there's a lot of things that I'd like to do over. And so while I share these things with you, there'll be times when it'll be a little bit painful for me. But I think at the end of this series, as you listen to these talks, if you're a parent, it's going to be really helpful to you. If you're a grandparent, it's going to be helpful to you. And if you're here and you say, Mark, I'm single and I don't have any kids yet, but I'd like to have kids someday. I really am envious of you because you have the chance to invest on the ground floor. If your kids are small, you just have an opportunity to make so much difference. And here's the thing. Could be talking to somebody and you say, Mark, I don't have any kids, so my kids are gone. I'm never going to have kids. Um, is this going to apply to me, number one? You're God's child, so you're going to learn a lot about your relationship with God. But there, here's the thing. Rearing kids has never been more difficult than it is today. People who are parents who bring kids up today, it's the toughest time in history. And my guess is this. In fact, I know this. Even if you don't have kids and you're never going to have kids, you love people who do have kids. And what you're going to learn is transformative in these four weeks. And you're actually going to be able to help, help friends with, with just questions that they're dealing with in rearing their own kids. So I think it's going to be good for all of us as we spend these four weeks together. Let me start by giving you what I consider to be the quintessential verse in the Bible on rearing kids. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your kids. Now, I could just as easily say mothers, because it's just a word really for parents, but it just says, do not exasperate your kids. And let me tell you what that means. It, it means don't make your kids feel like giving up. 
And that had to be really groundbreaking in the first century because when this was written, kids were just pieces of property. Fathers, if they didn't want the kid, could set the kid outside and somebody would come pick up the kid and the kid would become a slave. So in the first century, for God to have his, his leader write these words, don't exasperate your kids, that was groundbreaking. And it's still groundbreaking today. Fathers and mothers, don't make your kids feel like quitting. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. To me, as a parent and as a grandparent, those three words are the most important words in the Bible about kids. And for me, they frame the whole thing of, of rearing kids. Bring them up. You have a child today? Think about that word. Bring him up. Bring her up. Bring them up. All of us want our kids to be up. And by that, I don't necessarily mean rich and famous. Sometime back, I read a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it said that the, the premise of the book is that rich parents tend to have kids that grow up and learn to be rich. And poor people tend to have issues that cause their kids to grow up to be poor. Hey, here's the deal. I don't know that my kids are ever going to be wealthy in the ways of the world. I don't know if they'll ever be famous in the ways of the world. But I want them to be up in the most important areas of life. I want them to have healthy relationships. I want them to love what they do for a living. I want them to be men of honor and men of virtue. I want them to be up. And I think all of us want our kids to be up. But dads especially, and really moms, all of us who are parents and grandparents, you cannot ignore the verb. The verb is bring them up. Not push them up or send them up, but bring them up. Think about the grammar there. I don't have to be up to push my son up. I can be down and push him up. I don't have to be up to send my son up. But in order for me to bring him up, I must first be up. How many times do parents communicate the message, don't do what I do, just do what I say? You can't bring your child up unless you are up. You cannot bring your child up to be a God follower if you're not a God follower. You cannot bring your girl up to be a woman of honor if you're not a woman of honor. You cannot bring your son up to be a man of virtue if you're not a man of virtue. So bring them up. Let those three words be what we focus on, on the next four, in the next four weeks in this series. Now, I want to start uh, with what parenting is all about, and I think all of us here know that parenting is all about communicating messages. When you have a child, an infant, whether you're carrying that infant in your body or you're holding that infant in the birthing suite or you have a 16-year-old at home, you understand very clearly that parenting is about communicating messages, messages that are precious to you, messages that are meaningful to you, Messages that you know your kid needs, you need to communicate those messages from your mind to his mind, from your heart to his heart or her heart. And I don't know what those messages are to you. I'm guessing it goes something like this. Tell the truth. Work hard. Be responsible. Be safe. Personal hygiene. Don't embarrass me. I mean, those are just key messages that we want to communicate, right? Now, if you've been a parent for very long, you know that from time to time you communicate a message and the kid doesn't seem to be picking up on it. So the question we start asking is, how do I turn up the volume? Because I really want to get this message across, and somehow and what I'm doing is not working. What we have here, as the old movie says, is failure to communicate. So you want to turn the volume up. I want to ask you a question. What do you do to turn up the volume on those messages? If you're like a lot of Americans, you turn up the volume by turning up the volume. It's like, I'm sorry, you didn't seem to get this, so I'm going to scream the message out. 
But several bad things go wrong when we begin to yell because if you yell at your kids, your kids will probably yell back at you. That's right. And then you will turn up the volume, but unfortunately you will communicate the wrong message. You will turn up the volume, and the message you communicate is, I am now an adult who is out of control. So you got an adult out of control communicating to a kid that's out of control. The next thing you know, your home, the environment, the climate in your home is, a, is an environment of, of warfare. And people in the house will actually begin to avoid going inside because there's a whole lot of yelling going on. Frankly, a lot of times we start by turning up the volume not with our kids but with our spouses, and our kids just learn it because mom is yelling at dad and dad is yelling at, at mom. But the thing that I've, here's why it really doesn't work with kids, is what I've discovered with kids is if you turn up the volume on the transmitter, they will turn down the volume on the receiver. And so mom is yelling her head off, and the kid's just there. You know, he's got the volume turned down. It's just that's, and it doesn't work. So when we discover that turning up the volume by yelling doesn't work, a lot of times we'll turn up the volume by adding a threat. And, and I'm careful about this, and we're going to have a talk on boundaries, but the truth of the matter is there are situations in which we will need to communicate to our kids that if they go on with unwise and unhealthy behavior, negative consequences are going to come into their life. So there's a place for that. But wouldn't you agree with me, and if you've ever seen an environment like this, wouldn't you agree with me that something becomes problematic in a child-rearing situation where a threat being attached to a message is the default scenario? In other words, every time the parent communicates a message to the kid, there's always a threat associated with it. If you don't do this, I'm going to ground you. If you do this, I'm going to ground you. If you do this, you're going to go to timeout. If you don't do this, you're going to go to timeout. It's like everything, every message that's communicated, there's a threat that goes along with it. Well, what can happen in a situation like that is the kid can begin to assume that the only reason to do right is to stay out of trouble. And the kid can also learn that not getting caught works just about as well. Well, then, sometimes we say, well, if I'm going to turn up the message, I've got to add an incentive to it. And again, I'm careful there because there are times we want to incentivize good behavior. But again, if we, be, if we have to incentivize every behavior, if we incentivize things that are in the kid's best interest just to get them to do what they should do, well, that's a problem. Uh, I never have had that with my sons, but I have that problem with my dog, Fred. We have a toy poodle that's just crazy. He's, I, I would say he's the dumbest thing I've ever seen, but he may be smart in a diabolical kind of way. <laughs> Fred is really Mary Alice's dog. And, and the thing about Fred is that <laughs> early on we learned that when you let Fred to go out to take care of nature's things, Fred would go out into the front yard, and then he would discover freedom. And so Mary Alice would call him, and Fred would never come. I mean, she, he, she would say, here, Fred, here, Fred, here, Fred. And Fred would just be wandering around like he was oblivious. And then he'd go out in the street and get in front of cars, and neighbors would look at us like, can't you control your dog? And poor Mary Alice got embarrassed, and Fred wouldn't come. So the only word that Fred knew was treat. So, you know, Fred would go outside, take care of nature, and then he wouldn't come in and start wandering around him. Mary Alice would get embarrassed. He said, Fred, you want a treat? And then pew, he'd just be like a laser and shoot right in the house. And now he's eight years old, and he's the only dog in the neighborhood who thinks he deserves a treat to go out in the yard and take care of nature. <laughs> well, for some of us, that's a little too close to home because that's the way it is at home because we have to incentivize everything with our kids. How do you turn up the volume? 
How do you turn up the volume on the most important messages? Well, if you're over 12 years of age, let me ask you a question. You have messages that are part of your life. How did the key people in your life, your mom, your dad, your grandparents, your teachers who were good teachers, your coaches, how did they turn the volume up on key messages in your life? My guess is if you'll think about it very clearly and very long, you'll think about the fact that the leaders in your life who most successfully communicated key messages modeled those messages. They didn't scream them at you. They didn't threaten you with them. They didn't have to incentivize you. They just lived out what they told you, and, and, and you saw them put into practice what they asked you to do. If you want to turn up the volume on what you say to do, then do what you say. Because, and this is what today's talk is about, the kids are watching it's just a great verse for leadership. It's actually written to pastors, but it's for parents and anyone who's in leadership. In Titus chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says, In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. If you want to turn the message up for your kids on the things that are most important, set them an example by you doing what is good. Now, let me give you some disclaimers real quick. Number one, nobody's perfect. There are no guarantees and you can't control all influences. And here's the thing. You may not even live to see the final grade, to see your final grade as a parent. Never confuse a kid with a moment. Because all of us, or maybe not all of us, but most of us are going to have situations in which we're raising kids, and for a while something may not seem to go. We, we feel like, oh, I'm a failure as a parent. But never confuse a kid with a moment. Think about it is, if you have kids, they're going to teach you to pray. We're going to do a series called Push, Pray Until Something Happens. But I promise you, if you have kids, you'll learn to pray. I mean, you'll pray prayers like, you know, God, please just let me hang on one more day. God, please don't let me kill her. I mean, I promise you, you'll learn to pray if you have kids. So if, if turning up the volume is doing what is good, I want to talk to you about five key areas real quickly where our kids are watching us. And, and let me just start with this one, which I think is, is, is very important. Your kids are watching your relationship with God. Real faith is the most important thing you can communicate to your kids. Jesus put it this way. What does a person profit if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I mean, what would my kid be profit if he became president of the United States but he didn't know Jesus? What would our kids be profited if they had millions of dollars and yet they did not know God? Real faith is the most important thing you can communicate. No faith leaves your kid ill-equipped to face time and eternity. We've all, or at least, I guess most of us at least, have seen Charlie Sheen's meltdown, meltdowns, the goddesses, the tiger blood and all that kind of stuff. Do you know what his dad, Martin Sheen, said in an interview recently? Martin Sheen said, I never lost my faith, but I felt for a time that I had outgrown the church. Now it is a bone of contention in my soul that I did not share my faith with my kids as my parents did with me. Real faith is the most important thing you can communicate to your kids. No faith leaves your kid vulnerable to time and eternity. And I know some people will say to me, Mark, 
I, I don't want, I want my kids to make their decisions for themselves. And I think there's a legitimate sense in which we want our kids to have their own faith journey. But to leave them chartless, as Emily Dickinson said, to leave them chartless with no spiritual upbringing is absolutely criminal. Real faith is the most important thing you can communicate. No faith leaves your kid ill-equipped to face time and eternity. Fake faith is more toxic than no faith. Paul wrote to Timothy, I remember your genuine faith. In the word there is unfaked faith. That was in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Parents, I mean, we all put our best foot forward. I mean, you know we do that. When we go, in, you know, go out in public, we, we put our best foot forward. When we got company coming over, we put our best foot forward. But please listen to me. There is one place where you never put your best foot forward, and that is in the area of faith. Whatever you believe about God, let it be real. In Texas, oh, we do a lot of things in Texas that just defy explanation. But uh, in Texas, when I was growing up, we used to have barbecues, and we'd have it on the hottest day of the year, you know. And there was a, a family that they were members of a small church, and they were having a barbecue for everybody in their church at their house. And they invited, you know, all the church members. And, and unfortunately, it turned out that the, the barbecue was in the hottest day of the year. It was 105 degrees in the shade, and stuff was not coming. The meat, and there was problems with the meat, and they were having problems with the potato salad, banana pudding, things like that. And, but the crowd was gathering from the church in the house while stuff wasn't going right. But finally, they were able to get all the food on the serving tables. And just about that time, the minister and his wife drove up. And the man of the house, wanting to impress the minister and his wife, when he saw the minister coming, thought, man, we better, have, we better say grace for this meal because I don't want the pastor to think we're heathen. And he started to have the pastor say grace. But he thought, what would really impress the preachers if he had his 8-year-old boy ask the blessing? So he called his 8-year-old son over, Jason, and he said, Jason, I want you to say the blessing. I want you to say the prayer before we have lunch. And Jason, loud enough for everybody to hear, said, I don't know how to do that. And so the guy said, loud enough for everybody to hear, especially the pastor, well, son, prayer is just talking to God. Just talk to God the way you hear dad talk to God. Don't get ahead of me now. So Jason just turns his eyes toward heaven and says, oh, God, why did I invite all these people here on a hot day like this? <laughs> but here's the deal. While some of us are kind of chuckling at that, we had a situation where we were arguing and yelling on the way to church here today, and yet when we got here, we stepped out of the car and was like, hi, everybody. <laughs> now, the thing I want to get across about communicating faith to your kids is this. You're not going to do everything right, and you're going to slip and fall. The important thing is that you communicate to your kids what a real faith journey is. I know that especially in this late service, we probably don't have too many of you, but some of you who are real old New Springers will remember the story I told 20 years ago. I know that for a lot of you, you wouldn't believe this, but I used to, seven days a week, I'd be in a suit. That's what ministers did. And... About 20 years, actually 1991, I had to go to Texas right about this time of year because there was a national conference of pastors that I belonged to. And actually, I happened to be the youngest president in its history. 
So there would be meetings in the morning, meetings in the afternoon, there'd be meetings at night, and I was going to be on stage to emcee a lot of this. And so we were driving to Texas, and Jonathan would have been about 10, Jared was probably about 8, Mary Alice, we were driving to Texas, and just about the time before, when we crossed the border, Mary Alice said, oh, oh no. And I said, what's the matter? She said, I forgot your suits. I left them on the bed. And I'm thinking, the only suit I have is the rumpled suit that I've driven to Texas in. And that morning, I, I had preached, we only had one service on Sunday uh, morning back then, and I had preached, this, I don't remember what, exactly what the message was, but I'd preached a message that went something like this. You can always trust God no matter what goes on in your life. Just trust God. Don't go to pieces. Just trust God. And so I'd, I'd preach that message, and, and now here I am, and my wife is telling me that she's forgotten all my suits, and I would love to tell you that I didn't go to pieces and I just trusted God, but I didn't. I lost it. And I started just yelling at Mary Alice. I turned up the volume. I started yelling at her, and I said, I cannot believe you forgot all my suits. Of all the things that you could have forgotten, why did you forget my suits? How am I going to have this one rumpled suit for all these? And I just went on and on and on. I said, how could you do this? And finally, I just, you know, kind of ranted so much that I ran out of air and stopped for a second. And all of a sudden, I heard this 10-year-old voice from the backseat, Jonathan, say, Dad? do you believe what you preached this morning? And I turned around and gave him a look that'd freeze water. <laughs> How dare he talk to a man of God that way? <laughs> it's like, no more of that. And I just, I, uh, I was beyond... I was beyond consoling. We got to Texas and Russell Park. Why don't you just go to the mall and buy a suit? And I said, you don't understand. Because a suit, a good suit is really expensive. A good suit costs as much as a kitchen appliance. And I can't afford it. She said, well, maybe you can find one on sale. And I said, well, even if I did, it takes a week to get one altered. It's just, just, it's just impossible. And finally, she got me calmed down enough to where I would just drove to the mall and we went to Penny's or Dillard's or one of those stores, and I can't remember. But the, the salesman brought a suit out, and he, he showed it to me. And it's a color I've been looking for. It's a really nice suit, beautiful suit. He said, it's, about, it's $500. And I thought, well, of course. That, that's 20 years ago. It's a lot of money for a suit. It's $500. And I said, well, I can't afford that. He said, well, yes, you can. He said, we have a half-price sell-on. And he said, beyond that, today there happens, there's an extra discount on it. It's $178. Now, you need to understand, my wife and boys are in tow here. And I said, but how long will it take to get altered? Oh, he said, we have a shop right here in the store. He said, I think we can have it for you in about 20, 30 minutes. <laughs> so 30 minutes later, we're leaving the mall, and I have the new suit hanging up in the back of my Volvo. And, we're, and I can remember like yesterday, we were on 183, going back to the hotel. And I remember what Jonathan said. I turned around and I said, Jonathan, I believe with all my heart what I said yesterday. I'm just not living by it very well right now. One thing I've learned about my sons, they don't expect their dad to be perfect. They're fine with a dad who's not perfect. 
they're just not fine with the dad who's not honest. And they're sure not fine with the dad who's not honest about spiritual matters. You know, here's the thing. If you screw up, tell your kids you screwed up. I mean, let your kids know that a walk with God is a very imperfect person walking with a very loving, perfect God. And then within reason, when, when you screw up in front of them, I mean, if, you, if, if possible, let, you, let them see you confess your sin before God. I mean, let them know that you're an imperfect person who puts confidence in a God who is the God of creation and know you're not perfect and you're not trying to get your kids to embrace you as God, but you're trying to point them to the one who is the king of kings. And, and, and so I would just say start by remembering your kids are watching your relationship with God. And i got to hurry because now I only have 15 minutes to give you the other four. Number two, your kids are watching the way you handle authority. Guys and ladies, never forget there's a line in this world that marks the difference between winners and losers. And that line marks the distinction between people who have respect for authority and people who don't have respect for authority. People who have respect for authority are always overachieving. People who don't have respect for authority are life's underachievers. And I have so much to be grateful for because I had wonderful parents who modeled wonderful things, but my parents taught me two things that I cherish. There are two qualities that will take you so far in life, and they are respect for authority and gratitude. You show me somebody who has respect for authority and is grateful, and I'll show you a person who will get to the top and know how to stay there. You show me somebody who is ungrateful, show me somebody who doesn't have respect for authority, and I will show you somebody who is always whining about why life is unfair and they never can get anywhere. I guess I'm, I'm really concerned about this one because it seems like to me every time I go to a movie or every time I watch television, it's like there's a message being preached to our kids. You take, your, take your son or daughter to a kid's movie and you watch, and there's, there's a sermon being preached about how that kids should disrespect their parents, disrespect adults, disrespect authority. And it's cute and it's entertaining and it's funny, but it's demonic. And, and I just want to say to all of us here today, and this, it's a challenge for us because here's the thing. You know, so many times parents can come home and a, and a guy's complaining, oh, it's unfair, my boss is unfair, and, and the policeman who pulled me over, he just probably didn't have his quota of tickets, and it's like life is never fair to me. That's a mistake. Let me just say this to all of us. All human authority has faults. Teachers are not perfect. Law enforcement people are not perfect. Judges are not perfect. Politicians are not perfect. But I honestly think one of the best lessons we can teach our kids is to have respect for authority. And obviously, I'm not talking about abusive authority. That's a totally different thing. But I'm just saying no authority is going to be perfect. I am so grateful that when I was a kid growing up that even though the teachers might not have been perfect, my mom and dad taught me you get in trouble at school, you're in real trouble when you get home. My parents believe the teacher was always right. Was she always right? Was he always right? No. But my parents taught me that I was to respect authority. And right now, at 55 years of age, I am so grateful because respect for authority and gratitude has just taken me so far. <laughs> I thought about a couple of situations when my boys were small. They were about the same age. I talked about 10 and 8, Jonathan and Jared. I remember going into a QT one day, and um, I, my, I, you have to understand, I grew up a 
Southerner, I grew up in Texas. My parents taught me to say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, no, sir, no, ma'am. They taught me to stand up when an elder entered the room. They taught me to stand up when a superior entered the room. They taught me to open the door for a lady. And I know that's old school stuff, but I'm grateful for that. <laughs> I went into a QT, and I said yes, sir, to the guy behind the counter. He kind of lost it on me. He said, I'm not your dad. And I said, you don't understand. I say yes, sir, to my sons. I say no, sir, to my sons. I remember in the days where feminism was getting kind of bristly, and I remember opening a door for a lady one time, and she snapped at me and said, I can open the door for myself. And, you know, i tell you what I thought both times, and I'm not, try- I'm not trying to be arrogant, but honestly, in both situations, this is what I thought. I thought, this is not about who you are. This is about what my parents trained me to be. This is about who I am. Moms and dads, I just want to tell you, kids are watching how we treat authority. And if you and I grow up whiners, if you and I grow up disrespectful, if we grow up and we say, well, I'm just kind of rebellious, that's just who I am, I would encourage you to change. Because you and I want to bring them up. We want to train our kids to be winners. Let me move on. Kids are watching how we treat people. Could I say to all of us who are dads here today, your sons will learn to treat women how you treat your, by how you treat your wife and by how you treat women. Ladies, your daughters will learn to treat their husbands. They'll learn to treat men from the way you treat your husband. One of the, some of the best advice, i got to just run through this because our time is fleeting, but in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, the Bible says, the same goes for you husbands. Be good husbands to your wives. Honor them. That means value them. Delight in them. As women, they may lack some of your advantages. That was a cultural statement for the first century. As women, they may lack some of your advantages, but in the new life of God's grace, you're equals. Treat your wives then as equals so your prayers don't run aground. That's a great line right there. Summing up, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. That goes for all of you, Mark. No exceptions, no retaliation, no sharp tongue sarcasm. One more time, no sharp tongue sarcasm. One more time, no sharp tongue sarcasm. A lot of of couples, that'd be the end. You would know what's safe if you took that one out. Instead, bless. You know what the word bless means? It means to say good things about people. Instead, bless. That's your job. Guys, say good things about your wives. Wives, say good things about your husbands. You say there's nothing good about my husband. Then just make it up. I mean, it says, look at this. I mean, it's in the Bible. Bless. That's your job. To bless, you'll be a blessing, you'll get a blessing. Whoever wants to embrace life and see the day fill up with good, here's what you do. Say nothing evil or hurtful, snub evil and cultivate good. Run after peace for all your worth. Let me just tell you something. If you have a home like this where you just say good things about each other, I want to tell you something. Your kids are going to grow up in a climate of grace and you're going to, treat, you're going to teach them how to treat people. Oh, goodness, I'd love to have 45 minutes for number four, and I don't have, oh, I'll just take probably four or five minutes with it. Kids are watching how you make choices. In years of counseling, this is where I've discovered the biggest myth in parenting. 
I've listened to parents tell me about what they're doing, and I realize this is the one place that parents tend not to get it. And I don't have time to flesh this out, but if you want to read this when you go home, read the book of Genesis, read the story of Lot and his daughters, and read the story in 2 Samuel of David and his sons. Parents believe they are communicating choices by the choices they make. So when I talk to parents, usually they think if they make choices in moral areas, their kids will make the same choices. They think if they make choices in in career areas, their kids will make similar choices. Kids do not learn choices from their parents. They learn the basis of choices. Now here's where it gets a little dicey for some of us who are Christ followers. We're very talented, we're adroit at compartmentalizing our lives. Now some of us, we make very healthy choices when it comes to moral areas. We're faithful to our wives, we're faithful to our husbands, we're very careful about making sure that we don't have immorality in our lives because we understand how important it is to make healthy choices in moral areas and how, what it means to our relationships. So we're very, we make good moral choices. But you know what? Business is just different. The way my particular business is done, this is just how, how you do it. You have, to, you have to tell some things that aren't true. You have to cheat a little bit. You have to cut some corners. Everybody in my, my culture understands it. It's just how business is done. I'm very careful in moral areas, but I cut some corners over here in, um, in economic areas. <laughs> Our kids don't pick up on that subtle nuance. Here's the deal. We cut corners in an economic area. Our kids may cut corners in a moral area. Read the story of Lot. We cut corners in a business area. Our kids may cut corners in a family area. So when we make choices, remember that our kids are watching the basis of how we make choices. Well, I, I want to get to this fifth one because to me it is the most important. And as a dad who's now coming close to the end of his time of having a child at home, honestly, I think this has been the place where I've won some of my biggest victories, and without a doubt, it's where I've had some of my biggest losses and failures. If I think about with Jonathan and Jared and Stephen, where I would most like to have do-overs, it's in this fifth area. And I really think it's the most important thing I'm going to tell you all day. The kids are watching when you're under pressure. See, this is where it gets challenging because, see, we give ourselves a pass when we're under pressure. We, we, we do something foolish, it's like, well, I just, you know, I mean, I, I, everything's falling apart, and I just kind of lost it. And on top of that, other adults will give us a pass. Well, yeah, she had a meltdown, but, boy, she's just been really going through a tough time lately. We, we sort of contextualize that. We, we put an arm around her and offer some chocolate, you know, because, after all, she's been having a bad day. And, see, that's just how we adults do it. We, we get it. We, we know that when people are going through a tough time, having pressure, lose a job, marriage not going well, we understand that a person could, could make some unwise choices and behave foolishly, but kids don't do that. See, Kids watch us when we're under pressure, and what we do under pressure, our kids just say, well, that's who dad really is. Pressure's just revealed who he really is. The problem is that, well, you know, that's just how my mom really feels. 
Now, is that fair? Probably not, but I hope that you knew when you got pregnant that fair wasn't going to be part of the equation. But it is what it is. And that's a challenge for us because when you're under pressure and your back's against the wall and you you don't know if you're going to make it, it's a challenge at that moment to stop and think, my kids are watching what I'm doing. But the thing about it is some of the most precious teaching moments come at times like that. And isn't it true that tough times can bring out the worst in us, but isn't it also true that tough times can bring out the best in us? And if I haven't enticed you parents to think about this, could I entice you to think about it from a different perspective? For all of you who are over 12, I want you to think about the most powerful messages that came to you that were healthy messages that came from adults. And I want to challenge you to think about how many of those came to you from adults who were in trouble and under pressure when they taught you what they taught you. How many of you had parents who went without when times were tough, to make sure that you had something. How many of you have parents that instead of going out to eat, they drove you through a drive-thru so that you could have something to eat and a special meal, and they went without? How many of you have parents who went without new clothes so that you could have new clothes and wouldn't be embarrassed at school? How many of you have parents who went without and things that they would have liked to have had, they went without treats so that you could have something special. My guess is this, and that's how I grew up. My guess is if you have parents who went without so that you could have sacrifice as part of your life and nobody ever had to teach you to give. If you have parents who under pressure, you saw your dad or mom kneel to pray, my guess is prayer is second nature to you. If when your dad was under pressure, he told the truth at great personal cost, maybe at the cost of a job, My guess is that honor matters to you. If when your parents' world was falling apart, you saw your mother put her her arms around your dad and say, well, at least we still have each other, my guess is that family is very important to you, more important than a home in Malibu. Isn't it true that the most powerful messages you ever got were from adults who were going through tough times and did the right thing. You know, of course, I'm a pastor. My 35th year, my 27th year, the first week of June here at New Spring. My father was a pastor of the same church for 50 years almost. And I learned many things from my dad. I'm a pastor of a mega church. My dad pastored a small church. I think it's probably tougher to pastor a small church at times. New Springers, we don't know anything. You know, the churches have politics, not New Spring. And so for you New Springers, you may not know about this, but do you know churches have politics? And I don't mean Democrat, Republican politics. I mean church politics. Any of you been in churches like that? I mean, it's like, you know, people don't like this, don't like that, and, you know. And so there's this kind of like this stuff going on. And my dad pastor a church of about 175 people. And when I was 16 years old, the church went through the most difficult time and there was a click in the church that got mad at another click in the church. They weren't mad at my father. They were just mad at each other. But my dad wouldn't take sides. And before long, both sides were angry at my dad. And about a third of the church walked away. And when they left, they left ugly. They left saying unkind, hurtful things about my father's leadership. In fact, they walked out, like many of them, knifing my father in the back. 
I didn't take it very well. I'm 16 years old. I want some of those people to go see Jesus now. Because here is the thing. Some of those people have been in our church for 25 years. Some of those people I knew personally that my parents and my, our family, we had planned vacations. We were going to go on vacations, but one of, those, one of the family members got sick. We put the kibosh on a vacation. Didn't take a vacation that year because my dad was ministering to those people. They would call at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. I saw my dad go and be there with those families. I saw him spend days at the hospital with some of those people. Some of those people that my dad had invested so much in stabbed him in the back. And I'm 16 years old. I don't know that I'm going to be a pastor in those days. I thought I was going to be a lawyer and go into politics. But I'm watching how my dad handles that. Do you know, I remember like it was yesterday. He never said anything about it. Never defended himself from, from stage. It was the first time in my life I'd ever seen a minister do a series of messages. My dad did a series of messages on 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Every week... He taught on a different aspect of love. Got everybody in the church to memorize 1 Corinthians 13. We would start our services. He would have the entire church stand up and recite 1 Corinthians 13. In the most difficult time of his life, when people he had invested his life in stabbed him in the back, he stood up every day and preached the love of God. You think that hasn't impacted me for 35 years? You think I haven't drunk from that well so many times as I've pastored and gone through difficult times? Why? Because I saw my dad with his back up against the wall in a time when he was under pressure. He did the right thing, and it transformed my life. If you want to turn up the volume on what you say to do, then do what you say. Because Titus chapter 2 verse 7 says, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. I'm so glad you came here for the first of four installments. I hope you come back for the next three. God bless you. Thank you for being here. You're dismissed. We'll see you soon. <laughs>